Trevor Met Timbers Party Vote National. Enjoying being out and about and up out in the sunshine. The week started suitably weird, sometimes totally whack. We're not indigenous as Maori. We came here from Hawaii. You roll out working with any parties that have anti-vax candidates in them? Look, again, we're not getting started. Would you have any anti-vaxxers around the ministerial table? Uh, I don't think so, no. Then, with the opening of the government books on Tuesday, things got suitably serious. I think what these books represent is a turning of the corner for the New Zealand economy. New Zealand economy is turning the corner after a rough period. Labour has left the cupboard here. We are seeing light at the end of the tunnel. I want to be crystal clear, Grant Robertson is going to go down as one of the worst finance ministers this country has ever had. Topping it all off, mana from the news gods. Not one, but two major TV polls. Great fodder for campaign junk not so great for Labour. Break the glass, hit the panic button, Labour. This is your crisis poll. These numbers, Winston Peters is back in the game. He's not in Parliament, not above the thresholds, and hasn't been a thought for me. Better start thinking, Luxie, because odds on you are our next Prime Minister. Though not without a valiant fight. Just watch me. Kia ora Aotearoa, I'm Tova O'Brien and welcome to Tova, a stuff podcast. Later we'll hear from Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass with their analysis of the wild week that was and the no doubt wild week to come. But first, Stats NZ reporting this week that food prices are continuing to rise. It is a cost of living election. You've told us it is the number one issue you'll be voting on. I am a mum of two. We've got two incomes. And yeah, life is hard. We can't afford to buy all the food that we used to. Eating healthily is expensive. I actually filled up a car the other day, and it's usually $100. It's a small car, and it was $125. So I've had one salary increase in three years of 5%, so effectively 1.6% a year, which hasn't kept up with the cost of inflation. I see like my family, and they're like struggling a lot and like paying the bills and stuff. I've got a mortgage. I'm a single parent and I have shared care of my two boys and I really need to supplement my income so I have a flatmate. My number one worry is money. So yeah, going to the supermarket, I have to say no to a lot of like things like vegetables. The problem is weak politicians not holding people to account. What happened with the supermarket review? What happened with the capital gains tax? Why are we not taxing the rich appropriately and the rest of working New Zealand is struggling. And because you're feeling it so keenly, doing it so tough, our guests this week are two of the most important people in the country right now. Come October 14, there can be only one. Who will be your next finance minister? Grant Robertson or Nicola Willis? Labour Finance Spokesman Grant Robinson as the incumbent. He is up first and joins me now. Tēnā Grant. Kia ora, Tova. How has your week been? Like all good campaign weeks, busy in lots of different places. And yeah, good to get prefu out there for everyone to have a look at it. With inflation higher for longer, will you push out your plan to raise fuel taxes? So we need um, to use the mechanism we've got to fund transport in New Zealand. Fuel that's, ex- that's a no. But fuel excise duty, road user charges are an integral part of what we do. They're hypothecated, they go straight to that. So no, we're not changing Say the course. Net migration at 96 
thousand. Will you cap it? No, we don't believe in putting a number in Treasury or forecasting. Yeah, well, we actually didn't. I know I see that gets reported all the time. We didn't actually put a specific target in to say. Okay, but you talked about so cast We talked about bringing it down. Yeah, yeah. by twenty to thirty thousand, and that was when it was sitting at seventy thousand. It's not going to stay at ninety six thousand. I don't. Most people are predicting that Treasury say forty thousand by the end of this forecast period. I don't believe in putting numerical cap. The important thing about immigration is making sure we've got the right person for the right job at the right time. And I think we've we've changed the system to do that. There's some things we do need to get right there where exploitations happen. But no, we're not going to put a numerical cap on it. Criticised the Nats in the past for propping up the economy with migration. Mm. Yeah, look, and it's part of where we are right now, but we've also got a lot of productivity enhancing things, which I'm sure I can talk to you about in a minute. Whoopee! <laughs> because you have been, um, because you've been such a borrow and spendy pants, you've got debt blowing out by $13 billion. Is a it's term? a technical term. Is now really the time to be uh, promising such expensive policies, free dental for everyone, including trust fund kids, GST off, this, this GST boondoggle for everyone, including millionaires, is now really the time? We've been really careful with the kind of promises we're making and in fact we've been criticised because some of them don't come in until 2025, 26. The reason we've done that is to make sure we can match it with what we can afford to do with the spending allowances we've got. In the case of, of GST or fresh and frozen fruit and vegetables, um, we've used the building depreciation uh, thing by taking that off. So we've shown how we can pay for it but actually it's been very carefully calibrated to be able to meet the amount of money we've got available. What's to say you will even make those promises because you've broken so many promises and failed to meet so many implementation dates. There was the, the cheaper GP visits, missed the date you promised at the election, dental grants, same thing, uh, post-grad allowances still haven't happened. Jacinda Ardern's first promise as Labour leader, light rail down Dominion Road, Kiwi build. Why should we trust that you will do anything you say? Oh, because we have delivered a lot of things that we said we would. We've not um, delivered a lot as well. Well, but there are lots of reasons. How do we know which ones you're going to do this time? <laughs> but there or are lots which of reasons for what happened, obviously, where things, COVID in particular, got in the way of what we were trying to do. But, you know, we have delivered to New Zealanders strong economic indicators, low unemployment, low public debt, lifted kids out of poverty. We've done the big things we wanted to do. There's one or two projects that didn't get going. I can tell you a long story about what happened with um, light rail and in the first term of government and the coalition partners we had. We kind of had to restart that again when we came in this time. But I, I'm confident in our record in a very challenging environment. You're having a go at National over its economic credibility, though. And, and for sure there are a lot of questions, and we'll be putting those to Nicola Willis shortly. But, but there's a hypothetical. Yours are, are real. This is your legacy. This is what has actually happened. What does it say about your credibility? Because you have overspent every budget since COVID. Why should anyone believe that you're not going to do the same again and that you're still going to somehow magically get to surplus at the end of the four-year period? So we deal with what's in front of us. And what we've had to deal with as we've done budgets over the last few years is face up to a pandemic, face up to floods, face up to cyclones. That has changed some of the assumptions we've made at the halfway point. But budget allowances are a means to an end. The end is keeping that level of debt under 30% of GDP, getting ourselves to that surplus across the forecast period. We've dealt with what's in front of us. What's in front of us right now is a need to get that spending down 
after that big amount of emergency COVID spending. And we've already shown $4 billion of savings straight off the bat that we're going to do. There's a long-term savings program ahead of us now. We deal with what's in front of us. We cut our cloth. We've done that in the past and been able to make... cloth a bit more um, vigorously when you get closer <laughs> but, but, to an election. But, well, no, because this is the bit of the pathway out of the COVID spending. We cut our cloth to match what we needed in COVID. We now cut our cloth to get our spending back down from there. Saying on your, on your legacy and looking at some of the things that you didn't want to do, like GST or fruit and vegetables, and some of the things that you really wanted to do that you've um, not been able to, like the tax switch, like income insurance, something you really believed in. It, it makes you look like you don't have the courage of your convictions. No, I don't think that's right. It makes me realistic for the environment that I'm in. So if we just take the income insurance one, I absolutely accept the fact that economic conditions are really challenging. Inflation stuck around higher for longer. Interest rates stuck around higher for longer. We didn't get the corporate tax revenue we wanted. It isn't the right time to implement what is a very significant change. I can still believe in the principle of it, but understand that actually now is not the right time to do it. Let me play you something from last September. This is before Chris Hipkins kiboshed income insurance. Yeah, I guess the point that I'm making, Tova, is that this is what we do to, you know, collectively fund something that looks after people when the worst happens. And all of us will know somebody who's maybe got sick and had to give up work or, or has been made redundant. You so believed in it. You believed. I did, I did sound quite froggy early in the morning when you, you used to I think interview you're a, me. <laughs> you're a bit croaky at that point as well because I think you had been um, you've been sick. I think you might have had COVID. Um, you, you so believed in it. You believed in protecting the hundred thousand New Zealanders who were losing their jobs every year. You believed in protecting the sick people that got cancer and then you just rolled over. No, I don't think that's fair. I, I strongly believe in the values of the Labour Party. I believe in what we've done, the kids we've lifted out of poverty, the people we've got into apprenticeships, the state houses that we've built. That all really matters to me. Yes, I think the concept of how we look after people when they lose their jobs is important, but you've got to be realistic about the economic environment that we're in and the ability for you us to implement something You were pushing ahead with it until your boss said, nah, not that one. No, I mean, I remember the conversation I had with both Jacinda straight before Christmas and with Chris after he was elected when we said, hang on a minute, we actually need to take another look at the things we're doing. Is now the right time? And I, history will tell that I'm the one that went to Chris and said, this probably isn't the right time for I this. don't understand the point of politicians who don't do what they believe in, who won't stand up for what they believe in. But I am. I'm standing up for those kids that we've lifted out of poverty. I'm standing up for those apprentices. I am. There is a particular scheme and a particular thing that I wanted to drive forward, and I hope one day in the future I'll be able to do that again. It's just now is not the right time. Because you for did it. tell me in, in February this year as well that the work was going to be ongoing mm. with that scheme. It was just delayed. Has that policy work continued? Yeah, it has. And so it's looked at particularly what the best vehicle is, uh, but there is no change to the fact that it's paused. Okay. So people are still currently being paid. There's a small and number of people on, who are continuing to work on it, right? Even though it's not happening. Well, we hope it will at some point in the future. Okay, is that not wasteful spending? If no, it's actually a very important and useful piece of work, and it's a small number of people. A lot of um, numbers for you to process this week. How did this one in particular sit with you, though? Twenty-six point eight percent, which is Labor's vote on the the latest News Hub Read research poll. Look, we've got a ways to go in this election. You know, we've got a bit over four weeks. We're clearly behind, there's no doubt about that. And so we've got to work every single day 
But you get into elections, you get into politics because we do believe in things. I still think Labour is the right party to lead New Zealand forward. We've got a track record of getting New Zealanders through a really tough time and we've got a set of policies that are going to help with the cost of living from it's here. literally just told me how much you believe in income insurance, but you're not yeah, but I doing believe, it. You're ignoring the other things I said I believed in. This is an important election for New Zealand because it is about the kind of shape of the economy in a really tough period and the ability to support New Zealanders with cost of living pressures. My view is there are a lot of cuts that National are proposing that people, when they actually hear about them properly, will be really concerned about. You know, I get the mood for change thing. I actually understand that because people are tired and they're anxious and they're a bit grumpy and they want their lives to be different. They want change in that way. The question is, does changing the government deliver you that change? And my view is it doesn't. Actually, it just delivers you a whole lot of cuts to things that are really important to you. So that's our job over the next four weeks is to say we know, we hear you, but actually our prescription, our recipe for that will get you there with national, you'll just get cuts. If it is a change election, though, is there actually any fighting back? Has any incumbent party, has any incumbent ever fallen that low in a tally poll since I don't, MMP I don't, I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a student of the polls I had a cast way. back through, and it doesn't, not as far as I could see. And, and have any parties ever come back from that low during an election campaign? Like I say, I, I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is that we're getting up every they day haven't. to, they to just fight haven't. for what we believe in. Sure, There's no turning but I'm back. Not, I'm, not, I'm not just going to stop campaigning and, and stop doing things. I believe in what we're doing. We're the right party to lead New Zealand forward. And there is huge risk in the kind of national act New Zealand first sort of government that we could have. So I'm going to fight every day for this and then we'll see what the result is after October the 14th. Barring Andrew Little and, and Jacinda Ardern, I couldn't find any examples of anyone coming back from, from numbers though that low. If you, had, if you were leader, do you think things would be better? Chris is the right person to lead us. I it's such a hypothetical, it's not really even worth pondering. If Jacinda Ardern was still the leader, would As things I say, be better? I don't, uh, these are hypothetical questions. Chris is the leader. He's a very capable leader. He's somebody who I do back as having the vision to lead us into the future. And you just can't dwell on those hypotheticals. We've just got to keep fighting every day. In our staff rolling poll, Labour was on 31.9% before Jacinda Ardern quit. You're now on 27.9%. Is it time to roll Jacinda Ardern out <laughs> on the campaign? At least try and galvanise the, the base. No, no. I mean, I'm sure Jacinda's the last thing on her mind is the election. No, we've got the team to do this. Is we've it just though, got to get like, out Traditionally, there. former Prime Ministers, former leaders, they do come out. Her absence feels so conspicuous. It feels like either you think she's too toxic or she doesn't want to be associated with this loser Labour Party. No, I don't think either of those statements is true. Jacinda finished in January and she was very clear about that. Um, you shouldn't expect somebody to have to do that. I'm sure she's very supportive of us. She certainly said she was and I believe her about that. I don't know. <laughs> but it, I just don't think you can expect someone to come back like that. Okay, Helen Clark did. You rolled her out it's for the a, launch. It's been a few years since Helen was there. Okay. To finish up, Christopher Luxon this week called you one of the worst finance ministers of all time. Is it smart? Him saying that, yeah. well, it's it's up to him and he'll be judged by people for that. I, I've worked hard 
over the last six years to get New Zealand through some really tough times. Um, I'm proud of the work that I've done. Um, other people get to judge where I rank. What kind of finance minister will Nicola Willis be? Well, Nicola will work hard, and she's a smart person. Um, I don't happen to agree with her on many, if not all, of her policy prescriptions, but she's a, she's a smart and dedicated person, and that's what she'll be if she were to become finance minister. I think I just had a slip, and I said, what kind of finance minister will Nicola Willis meant to be? I meant would. Would, yeah. But you just answered will. Well, I just said if she is, okay. in my last words, if you want to go back on the do tape. You, do, you harbour any gen- do you harbour any genuine concerns? Of her. I think Nationals policy prescription is wrong. I think it will increase inequality. I think that it will cause a demise in public services that New Zealanders rely on because there are so many cuts. Um, I think there are huge holes in the plans that they've got around their tax cuts, around um, their transport policy. I'm genuinely concerned for how they'll run the New Zealand economy and the impact that'll have on our people. Um, I'm just not going to play the personal game that Christopher Luxon is. You've already called her a liar on this campaign, so you've kind of tick. Did you consider resigning when Jacinda Ardern did? No, I didn't. Um, Obviously, I'd worked through with Jacinda that period, you know, when she was thinking about what to do over Christmas and so on. Uh, But no, I knew I had a job to do. And and be totally honest with me. I'm sure you have been this entire interview. Totally honest. Have you written any of your valedictory speech? <laughs> no. Me thinks the gen protests tonight. No, I just think it's a hilarious idea. No, absolutely not. Not a word at all. Because you haven't been ruling out to me and many of my, my colleagues when we ask what your plans are after the election ruling out standing down, right? But that's fair, don't you think? I mean, I'm running to be the finance minister again. That is my focus. If and that you'd see out that full term. If, 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 that isn't, if that isn't what happens, then of course I'll reassess. But I don't think, you know, you don't sit here making, I don't anyway make those sorts of plans. I'm trying to trying to get re-elected. I have my last question. It's, I, it says something cheery so and I forgot to, written, to up, write a cheery up question. Up the waz. That's well, what's actually, cheery. I'll, I'll ask this one for producer Chris. If you could watch the Warriors <laughs> win in the playoffs or the All Blacks win in the Rugby World Cup, which would you choose? You, you can only ma- choose one. You can't make the Minister of Sport do that. You no. can I I refuse. We're doing both. Thank you very much for your time. Minister of Sport, Finance Minister, Labour Finance Spokesman, Grant Robertson. Cheers, David. National Finance Spokesperson, Nicola Willis, applying for the job of Finance Minister. Welcome to the show. Great to be on the show. How has your week been? Great. Yeah, I love campaigning. Suddenly this is the time where people are interested in politics and want to talk policy. And I'm a nerd 100% of the time, so election campaign time is when I get to do my nerdy things. Do you agree with Christopher Luxon that Grant Robertson will go down in history as one of the worst finance ministers of all time? Yes, he has overseen spending blowout after spending blowout. He's overseen a three-year-long cost-of-living crisis. He's crushed New Zealanders with effectively higher tax rates. He's allowed debt to balloon to more than $100 billion. And he's broken just about every spending commitment he's ever made. He was much more charitable to you when we <laughs> asked what kind of finance minister you would be. Do you think? Do you honestly think he would be worse than, than Rob Muldoonie, eyeing up wage and price freezes and ditching that, you know, socialist super scheme. So here's the thing. I know Grant quite well because we uh, used to campaign together in Wellington Central. And I don't doubt that he is a nice guy. And I don't doubt that he has good qualities. But I actually think 
that those qualities haven't in turn made it quite hard for him to be an effective finance minister. I don't think he's been very good at saying no to his colleagues. So you're mean, you're meaner and that's going to make you a better <laughs> finance minister, is that what you're saying? No, I think that I come from a party whose values allow me to be a better finance minister because at the heart of our party is a view that your money that you earn belongs to you and I as the finance minister am only ever a custodian of it. I need to be able to look you in the eye and guarantee I'm spending it better than you would in your household. And I think Labor come from a different values perspective, which is that they do believe that the government, the state, if allowed to get big enough, can solve lots and lots of problems. And we take the view that, yep, the government has to deliver good health services, it has to deliver good education, a a social safety net, but wherever we can, we should allow New Zealanders to keep their own money and make choices in their own households. Can we rewind to, to talking about super? You're raising the age of eligibility from 65 to 67 against the Retirement Commissioner's advice. Is there any chance that you'd change your mind on that? Jacinda Ardern ruled it out under her leadership. Is there any chance you'd change your mind? Uh, our policy is to lift the age of super entitlement to, um, from 2044 uh, to 67. We'll do it gradually in six-month increments. We think that's a good policy for two reasons. One, we have to make super sustainable in the long term. And in order to do that, we, we should reflect the fact that people are working for longer. Um, second reason we who, think it's good is it gives everyone aren't. time to plan, 20 years to plan. It puts us on a par with Australia and many other countries around the world. We think it's a responsible place for it to sit. To your first point, though, don't you worry about... Or don't you care about disadvantaging manual workers, farmers, people who with a lower life expectancy like Māori or, or Pacifica? I, I do care about that and I do worry about that. And of course, those people are impacted with a retirement age at 65. I don't think that there is enough of a case there to say that we shouldn't be looking at the age of entitlement and ensuring that it reflects longer working lives, longer lifespans, healthier lives. So everyone, and by the way, Labor used to campaign on it too. Yes. So everyone born after 1979, and that includes us, we'd have to wait two more years to get super. How much will those Kiwis, and I'm talking about everyone under 44 years old, how much are those Kiwis going to lose under national? Well, look, I think Labor have done some attack analysis on this, but the alternative I would put to you is this. Well, it's, not, it's not from Labor, nor is it attack analysis. It's just the reality. How much are those Kiwis going to miss out on because they're not getting they that extra mi- two they years They will miss out on a lot less than the alternative which is that the superannuation scheme starts to cripple New Zealand, becomes unaffordable, and its very viability is put at risk. And that's when you start getting political parties talking about means testing it, talking about reducing the value of the payments. National's not going to do that. We're preserving and protecting this entitlement by making a modest, moderate change and giving people time to prepare for it. You know the annual rate of super, right, for a single? Uh, yes, uh, for, a, uh, for a single it is... Um, uh, uh, I've just the number's just gone from my head, but it's just over five hundred. It's uh, a week is five hundred and seventy-eight dollars and sixty-seven cents. So it's th- about thirty thousand dollars a year. So all of those New Zealanders, anyone under forty-four years old, under national, is going to be losing sixty thousand dollars. Well, I would put to you that the alternative is an unaffordable super scheme. And actually, those New Zealanders are going to be cumulatively 
a lot better off if they have a government that is looking after the government books, that is taxing them more fairly, that is spending more fairly, that is making wiser investment decisions. We'll also make sure that we're making contributions to their KiwiSaver funds and that they are in a good position uh, in their retirement. Let me give you a case study, and I haven't used any AI or, or stock photos for this one. A 44-year-old median wage worker over the next 23 years, so the rest of their working life, would get $30,000 on your current tax cuts. 30k over 23 years, but by the time that 23 years is up and they're looking forward to putting their feet up, you're going to take, you're going to rob them of $60,000. But Tova, you're presuming that the tax reductions that National will offer in our first term are as far as it will go. We have already pledged that we think it's right that it, and by 2026 we review the tax and spend position for New Zealand and we take into account what inflation has done to a people's effective so tax rate. inflation will go up so you can give people more no, tax cuts. No, it's just that I, we are looking over time to keep facts tax fairer over time and I also and this is really important and it's always missed in our political conversation the best way to grow incomes the main way to grow incomes and to make people better off in their retirement is to grow the productive basis of our economy so that we are paying people more richer economies over the ditch Australia they pay people a lot more and so we want to do that and by driving growth by getting the regulatory framework right by getting the infrastructure framework their training and skills framework right by spending in a careful way you can drive productive growth and that's going to be more important to New Zealanders in their retirement doesn't change than anything else doesn't change the fact Nicola that on your current tax rates Kiwis under 44 years old would be getting $30,000 from you and then losing another 60000 at the other end. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul, as Labor said, aren't you? I do not accept your hypothetical because your hypothetical is based on the idea that superannuation will be kept being paid under the alternative scenario. And I would put to you that it's becoming unsustainable uh, under the current settings uh, and that different political parties will approach it in different ways. We're being the honest ones in this conversation. We're being the adults in the room. You'd also have to pay for those tax cuts first and to do that you'd need your foreign buyers tax to be fantastically successful. You've been pretty cagey about um, how you're going to get that $740 million. Are you rock solid, not a single doubt in your mind that you will make the $740 million from selling property to foreign buyers. In year one, it's 715 are out under our modelling and we are rock solid that that policy will work and that it will help deliver our tax plan. You are rock solid, not a doubt in your mind. I, I'm, I'm solid. Okay. I, all modelling that is done based on assumptions and I'm confident in our assumptions. I also had our assumptions externally reviewed uh, by Castalia. They're also happy with our assumptions. Using 2020 figures, so house prices were high already. Brightline test was half what it is now. 3,655 homes worth over $2 million were sold that year. If you sold 5% of them at your average of $2.9 million, you'd only make $79 million I don't think that's the right way to look at it. The way to look at it is this. Before the foreign buyer ban came on, New Zealand was selling at least 4,000 homes a year to foreign buyers. It's a conservative number, homes sold to foreign buyers. For our policy to work, we need to sell fewer than half as many as we used to sell to foreign buyers. Since 2018, house prices have inflated 
significantly. And we are putting a floor on our policy so that this is for houses over $2 million. Foreign buyers have historically wanted to buy at that top end of the market in markets like Queenstown, Auckland, the Coromandel, Bay of Islands. We are confident that we will be able to sell uh, high-value luxury homes to foreign buyers. Foreign buyers have traditionally made up around 3% of of buyers of property. In the year before the foreign buyer ban was in place, there were only 1,962 properties over $2 million. Yes, but as so I say... So 5% of that you're dealing with a, like more than half a billion dollar shortfall. No, I, again, I reject it because if you're using a figure from 2018, well, there's been massive house price growth since then. There's a lot more homes I gave you a 2020 figure as well when house price house But in terms of the 2020 figure, that is corresponding with a period when there is a ban on. And that ban has affected the market because there are fewer foreign buyers buying in the market. The second thing uh, that that figure I'm just looking at how many homes were sold for over $2 million and I think, then, not because of the And I think lifting the, the ban will change that number. Okay. And I also think that the imposition of a 10-year bright line test has very much subdued activity at the top end of the market because people with second year. homes people with second homes have been more reluctant to sell them because they face a capital gains, gains tax. So using the 2020 example where we've got a half, half the bright line test and high house prices, so we're kind of meeting in the middle here, you'd need to sell another 220 $20 million homes to make up your 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 tax take. It's really simple, Tova. We need to sell fewer than half as many foreign homes to foreign buyers as was the case before the ban. We need to sell them at the top end of the market. And here's the thing. Everyone who is attacking us about this policy disagrees with the idea that working people should get more money in their bank accounts each fortnight. I stand by that. I don't think that's what that. it is. I think it it's is just trying Tova. to figure out whether this Labor is Labour have opposed realistic. tax reduction every year. Faced with a cost of living crisis of massive proportions, they still wouldn't budge on personal income tax. Their entire strategy for funding the elevated spending is to allow people to be pushed into higher tax you brackets by inflation. Doesn't change the, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to be a finance minister who says, it's all right, I'll keep spending everything. You, yeah, you're getting a lot less pay. Inflation's killing you. You're being taxed more highly. I'm not going to do anything about it. We're going to do something about it. We've put together a very carefully balanced plan. You know, in the first year of our plan, Tova, it's so conservative that we take in $600 more million more dollars in savings and revenue than we then spend on tax reduction. That's how carefully we have put it together. You would and need it to stacks sell. up across eight different measures, remember? It's not just the foreign buyers tax. We're changing the way immigration levies are done. We're doing a gambling tax. We're ensuring yes, that there are savings the and reprioritizations across government. The, the well, that's simply not true because it's $715 million of the first year. Uh, and in the first year, we actually uh, only need to uh, generate $3.7 million worth of savings. So 700 versus 3.7. But, yeah, the, but re- regardless, I stand by it. The, the highest figure next to it. But I stand by that because I'm confident it'll work. Okay. You would need to sell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homes that are valued at over $10 million. Do you know how many homes are valued over $10 million that are on the market currently? Again, I reject what you're saying. What we need to do is sell half as many homes as used to sell. And yes, we need to sell them at the top quartile of the market, homes over $2 million. It doesn't take many sales of homes at the $20 million mark, the $10 million mark to drag the average up. Not necessarily, Tova. It could be $20 million homes. There are 42 homes for sale in New Zealand that cost over $10 million. Do these houses even exist? 
real estate agents have already come out saying that this will re-energise the luxury end of the market and that they have people wanting to buy homes. And then I'll tell you the other thing that happens when you've got people willing to buy. Suddenly, people are willing to sell. Mm. So we expect that there will be more listings, that there will be more activity in this part of the real estate market than there has been in recent years. Those were my back-of-the-envelope figures. Um, This here, though, this is forensic modelling, a review done by the head of research at CoreLogic, Nick Goodall, and two very respected economists, Michael Riddell and Sam Warburton. They replicated and then built on what we know about your method and what you're you're telling us today. And and bear with me here because this is important. It's your credibility. It's the the kind of the core funding of your key election policy. The modelling takes into account foreign buyers disproportionately buying in higher priced areas, growth in housing stock and sales, growth in house prices, that Australians and Singaporeans can currently buy houses, the foreign sales and that foreign sales in 2018 would have included foreign buyers getting in before the ban, so it was higher then actually than, than usual, and behavioural changes to get into the New Zealand market. So people that might have bought a $1.8 million home going for a $2 million home instead or even overpaying. Their best estimate, these enormous economic uh, economist brains, their <laughs> best estimate is that your foreign buyer tax would raise $210 million a year. You are missing half a billion dollars, I, more than half a well, billion dollars. Well, look, economists, I'm not surprised, have a range of opinions. I think New Zealanders are used to that. Economists sometimes say there's going to be a recession. Some say that there's not. Some have a view on a policy. Some have completely the opposite view. There's three economists. They've put a report together. I haven't looked at that report Can, yet. But what you're asking me is do I stand by the assumptions that we've made in our policy, uh, the economic modelling that we have done? I do. I had it externally reviewed, and I'm confident, and this is the thing that really matters to New Zealanders, we are going to deliver tax reduction. We've put together a carefully balanced plan, and frankly, you're wrong to say that it all rests on foreign buyers. That's not true. That's not backed up by the numbers. That's part of our plan, but our plan also... $740 million on average per year, it says right in here the in the first year of our tax plan, we generate $3.7 billion worth of savings in revenue. The foreign buyer's tax is $700 million of that. So yes, it's significant, and that's why I wanted to make sure our model stacks up. It does. Okay, I accept so I- that people... I accept that people have different opinions on that. But I tell you what matters. We're delivering tax reduction in a responsible way and New Zealanders can rely on us for that. They certainly can't rely on Labor for that. Can you name, um, Labor was getting a lot of this over the GST policy, can you name an economist that does think that you can bring in the $740 million on average per year? From the foreign buyers tax? I think that Brad Olson has come out and said that he thinks that it's optimistic but plausible. Okay. Because even their more generous high-end estimate leaves you with a $450 million shortfall. We don't have a shortfall. We are going to be just fine. Okay. If you are so certain, you are so rock solid, will you resign if you don't realise that first $715 million? (laughs) I haven't even got the job yet. But back yourself. If you're so rock solid, you told me this before, if you're so rock solid, just back yourself. I am absolutely rock solid. We will be delivering our income tax reduction plan and we will be doing it without a dollar of borrowing. And you'll resign if you don't realise that $715 million from the foreign buyer tax in the first year. Tova, I just want to take you to Treasury documents and budgets. No, no, I want to take you to your comments circa five, seven minutes ago. I stand by our costings, but will there be variability? Could a home sell uh, at a different level? Could we have a half a billion dollar hole? I don't accept that we will. I don't accept that we will. 
Uh, I stand by our costings. I stand by our forecasts. And I think it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction because that is what I am pledging. And you will make a commitment not to borrow, to deliver... Our tax, no, we will not be delivering, we will not be borrowing for tax not uh, a cent. reduction. That's no. something you would resign over? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not promising to resign over anything. Okay, just to, to finish up, David Seymour is circling your job. Chris Luxon has ruled out giving the finance minister role to David Seymour. Would you cede it, though, under any circumstances if it meant getting into power? Well, that's always a decision for the Prime Minister. It would never be a decision for me. Um, and I, I take Chris Luxon at his word which is that he wants me to be the finance minister. I think in a government that uh, relationship between the prime minister and finance minister is very important, but I would always serve at the prime minister's pleasure and I know that that's about doing what's right for New Zealand. It's not about me or my job title or my status. It's about serving in a government that will make a difference to New Zealanders. What about working, um, what about a treasurer type role? Would you consider working along David Seymour in a, in a treasurer capacity? I haven't even thought about that, but uh, would I consider working alongside David Seymour? Yes. Winston Peters in a treasurer capacity? Well, we haven't even seen Winston Peters get to a level where he'll necessarily be in Parliament, so that's a hypothetical that I'm not going to dabble with. He's done it before. Would you would you work with him? But that? whether or not he gets there at this election is a very open question. Do you support your leader in not ruling out working with Winston Peters? I support my leader, Yes. National on 40.9% of the News Hub Read Research poll this week. You have seen the party in some of its darkest depths. How different does this feel from the, the Bridges, Muller, Collins days? It's like chalk and cheese. It's completely different. I think one of the things that Chris Luxon has done really well um, that perhaps has gone unmarked is he has brought our team together into a very unified uh, vehicle. There's a real focus on the people we are in Parliament to serve. There's a real focus on New Zealanders and their lives and what we need to do as a team to deliver for them. He's transformed our structure. He's refreshed our board. We have a slate of amazing candidates and we are all singing from the same song sheet and that's a far stronger song to be singing uh, than a team divided. And I, I look over the other side and i um, I, I genuinely have some empathy for them because I remember what that's like. You really love Chris Luxon, don't you? <laughs> well, look, I'm serving alongside him and I believe that he'll be a great Prime Minister. Take that, Todd, Simon and Judith. But thank you very much for your time, <laughs> Nicola. I really appreciate it. All the best. Thank you. Cheers. Listening to that, who do you trust Leaving aside for a minute, if you can, the enormous economic issues that were laid bare in the pre-election opening of the books this week around debt, tax revenue, inflation returning to surplus, whether you agree with Grant Robertson that we are turning a corner or with Nicola Willis that Labor has left the cupboard bare, strip it right back to base essentials, the measure of the man and woman. Who do you trust? The guy who's been finance minister for six years and broken myriad election promises, capitulated to backlash on major ideological transformational policies that he truly fundamentally believed in. Do you trust him? Or the woman who wants to be finance minister but cannot and will not tell voters exactly how she plans to make the money to make good on her core centrepiece election promise? 
You'll have your views on whether COVID and extreme climate events forced Robertson's hand or whether he chose popularity over principle and whether that's OK or not. You'll also have views on whether you think Willis's explanation flies and whether you think having external consultants approve it without releasing any modelling or workings is enough. As people, both Robertson and Willis are fiercely intelligent. They both know their stuff. They're confident, competent and cast iron categorical that they are the best person to manage your money. They're also hyper-political. They were both staffers under powerhouse prime ministers, Robertson for Helen Clark, Willis for John Key. They ran against each other in the Wellington Central electorate in 2017 and 2020. Both bowed out from the seat this election. And they are ambitious. Robertson ran for the Labour leadership in in 2013 but lost to David Cunliffe. Willis was part of the crew who rolled Simon Bridges to install Todd Muller. They are also both chameleons. Robertson, usually the attack dog in the House, in our interview did his best to convince voters he's taking the moral high ground. He wasn't going to, quote, play the personal game that Christopher Luxon is, unquote. Willis, usually the first to call out Robertson for desperation when he's on the attack, was going for the jugular, agreeing he is one of the worst finance ministers ever, that he's been crushing and killing New Zealanders with high taxes and high inflation. Who you trust will probably come down to your politics, though maybe not. Sometimes we vote for people over party. The upshot is, this is an election in the middle of a cost of living crisis. These are the people who'll determine whether things will be better or worse for us all. You could argue, for the sake of promoting a podcast, for example, that the fight between Robertson and Willis is more high stakes than that between the Chris's. Be wrong, but it's a definite close second. So who do you trust? Which is it? Grant him one more chance, or where there's a Willis, there's a way. That's my take. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email tova at stuff.co.nz or even send us a voice memo. You might end up on the pod. We're going to get to some of your feedback a little later. Time now for Snakes and Leaders with the one, the only, our National Affairs Editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance. How are you? Where are you? I really want to give you a glamorous answer, but I'm actually in my office preparing for a candidate's debate and I'm in my pyjamas, so <laughs> sorry. That's, I mean, that is campaign glamorous. That is campaign glam. Um, I'm just having seen, time to get dressed. Some, <laughs> <laughs> um, your PJ's only rivalling Christopher Luxon and, and pirate dress-ups this week. We've also had polls. We had... Prefu, the government books opening. I cannot wait to hear who you've picked as the winner. Well, actually, I find it super easy this week. Um, Pirate costume aside, I think it's got to be Christopher Luxon, right? He's inching up the polls. As we know, polling trends tend to gather momentum. So the better you do, the better you will do. And for the first time, we had him crack the hallowed 40% mark in a poll this week. So that's great news for him. A bit of a caveat, though, he's still got a lot of explaining to do on that flagship tax package. And um, we've had a, three or four economists already come out and say there's too much of a hole in it. And we are all intrigued to see how they're actually going to pay for it, given those rocky preview numbers that came out this week. I'm also intrigued by his um, kind of leaning into the underdog status in the debate. On one level, I kind of think, man up, dude, it's not a cage fight and you are planning to run the country at some point so you know take it on the chin on the other hand I guess it, it is quite clever because generally people do love an underdog mm-hmm. um except for when it's the all blacks <laughs> sorry <laughs> couldn't resist go Ireland don't even mention don't <laughs> mention the all blacks and we'll play a little clip of Luxon shortly as well um pitching himself as the underdog in the upcoming TBNZ leaders debate this week Andrea who was your your biggest loser 
Oh, well, again, this was an easy one. Um, David Seymour, because I think he might have peaked too early. Um, mm. He's pulling behind the greens despite all the hype and these great predictions, including myself. I also predict he might crack 12, even 15%. I think some people were even talking about 20%. But yeah, he feels like with all these candidates dropping off, and I think we're up to five now, but you know, that could change by the time we're saying this and the podcast going out. And it sort of get the sense that he is maybe snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, it's kind of the reverse fairy tale that we saw for him last election. Have you got any honourable or, or dishonourable mentions for us this week? I do. I want to give a shout out to the unseen low-key greens because <laughs> <laughs> despite being invisible, they're polling really solidly. You know, we used to talk about them being the 10% party, like will they ever budge above 10%? But they're solidly around 11, 12 and that's in the absence of media coverage. And that's not their fault, you know? They're just, I guess they're just not that sexy to follow. Sorry, James and Marama. <laughs> so they'll doubtless be happy with those numbers. Yeah, and, and they've been quite conspicuously absent all term, really. But there's something to be said about that is that if you don't put your head too far above the parapet, you're not going to have it lobbed off by someone. Yeah, exactly. Unseen and keeping it clean. And green. Andrea, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, hopefully see you on the campaign this week. Always great to talk to you. And to you. See ya. Chris Hipkins is a 20-year career politician. He's a champion debater. He's probably the best debater in our parliament and probably in New Zealand. Uh, I haven't even done a debate uh, before, uh, so I, I lose a lot to my wife. Now it is time for the Beehive Buzz, what to look out for this week with Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass, who has been covering both islands of the country this week and beams into us from the, one of the best places on the planet, Dunedin. G'day, Luke. G'day. How are you? Great, thank you. We've got the um, the first leaders debate this week. We heard Luxon there, like pitching himself as a bit of a an underdog. Will he be the dud that he he says he is? Will Chippy be the the spectacular debater that Luxon says he is? Well, look, I think it's uh, it, obviously it's all about the expectation game at the moment, managing expectations. You know, if everyone thinks you're going to get up on stage and draw and you do better than that, well, that's probably upside. No, look, I jest, but obviously Lux is trying to lower expectations. Chris Hopkins is trying to do the same. It'll be an interesting one um, because even although Chris Hopkins is very experienced in parliamentary debates, standing up and actually doing like a, a debate outside of that structure will actually be quite a different kettle of fish. And Hopkins, you know, he's a Wellington wonk. He can be want to bog down in details and that sort of thing. Whereas uh, Lux at the moment is uh, it's really almost presidential. It floats over the top. It'll be a very interesting test of contrast next week. How how important are these leaders' debates in an election campaign? Can they shift the dial? Yes, they can, but not in the way that I think most people uh, think they will. Political idealists and insiders turn up and, and they say, you know, who's got the best policies and we can argue them the best. But the fact is you can do a thousand good things on a campaign, but if you do one really bad thing, that's the one people remember. So if you have a catastrophic moment in the debate where you get something dreadfully wrong, well, you just look like an idiot. That's the thing that can often cement itself in the public mind, not maybe the 90% of good points you made from the rest of it. So that's really the risk for both of them. Given the polls, I mean, obviously, if Chris Hipkins has a moment like that, you'd suspect that they would just finish Labour. Yeah, that's so it, isn't it? It's like David Cunliffe's capital gains tax moment back in, what was that, 2014, and uh, Bill English saying it's OK for politicians to lie. And actors relaunching its campaign this week come again? Yeah, so I think what that is, they had a campaign launch a number of weeks ago, but given that the campaign proper has started now, uh, they've got plenty of money, they can put this, these things on, so it's a good chance for them to 
to sort of say, hey, you know, everyone, we're, we're here again. Because, I, I, you know, um, uh, the last few weeks have been quite difficult for it. They've been quite difficult for David Seymour. He's looked under pressure, to be honest, for the first time in three years. And so it's really, there's an open question for them how strong they can they can finish. Uh, that's my boarding call, guys, I think. <laughs> All right, Luke, we'll <laughs> let you go and hustle to the plane. Thank you very much for your time, always. That's Luke Malpass beaming in from Dunedin Airport. I'm always interested to hear from you too. Email tova at staff.co.nz. And producer Chris, before you pull some gems from the mailbag this week, can I just share with you this email quickly from Infometrics Chief Executive and Principal Economist Brad Olson. You'll have heard Nicola Willis naming Brad as an economist who's publicly backing Nationals' foreign buyer assumptions. Uh, She said that he has come out saying it is optimistic but plausible. So I gave Brad a call off the back of that interview to see if he's seen the modelling by his economist colleague. Uh, that I asked Willis about. He took a look and emailed me back to say, I think all that I'd add is that the foreign buyers tax would require a higher proportion of foreign buyers to buy more expensive properties to achieve the revenue expected. That's possible, but there's nothing definitive to make that assumption on and it isn't explicitly laid out in Nationals tax plans. That is Brad Olson, their chief executive of Infometrics. And I'd also uh, point out that Willis is still refusing to release that modelling. Producer Chris, your turn. Follow that. <laughs> I dare yeah. I know you can, actually. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. We've had loads of feedback this week. Thanks so much to everybody that's been in touch to say how much they enjoyed the first episode of the podcast. One of them is Bob. Bob says, Hi Tova, really enjoyed your interview with the man formerly known as Chippy and he certainly sounded as if he was on the back foot in all his answers. Just wondering why I'm not hearing a thing about three waters or any co-governance issues in the lead up to the election. Have they been abandoned? Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Bob. I think it depends who you listen to. ACT is still talking a lot about co-governance. So is Winston Peters, hence those kind of baffling, more than baffling, Māori and not Indigenous comments this week. It's not being talked about by the major parties as much in the heat of the campaign because I think although it may seem like it in some parts of New Zealand, it is not the thing that people are voting on. We know that the cost of living, crime, housing, health, climate, those are the issues most New Zealanders are weighing up at the polls. Three Waters, uh, that's quietened after Labour passed its replacement, the affordable water reform, uh, a few weeks ago under urgency. It will become a thing again. National is vowing to repeal and replace that in its first uh, 100 days if elected. It is also worth noting that Andrea Vance will be writing about this issue using results from the post freshwater strategy poll so keep an eye out for that as well Mm. health next uh andrew got in touch he wanted you to do some digging for him andrew said uh not sure the extent of this my wife was in the pharmacy and heard an older gentleman being told that it was cheaper for him to get a new doctor's appointment every time he wanted a prescription because then the prescription was free the point being that the repeats were not free So apparently he was paying considerably more after the free prescriptions were introduced than before it. The pharmacist was obviously aware of this and was advising affected patients to pay for a doctor's visit each time to avoid the higher costs. It would be interesting to know the facts here. 
Hi, Andrew. Thanks for your email and thanks for the challenge. You nailed it. We got in touch with the Pharmacy Guild for you and they said typically repeats are free for funded repeat dispensing. That was actually the case before free prescriptions as well. But they said it uh, may be that that particular medicine the gent your wife overheard was um, getting, that maybe that particular medicine is unfunded or not fully funded or has specific pharmac rules that don't allow for funded repeats. We got in touch with the health minister's office for you as well and they told us that medicines are still free even if they're on a repeat so it shouldn't have been the case other than the the funding stuff and I am due to pick up a repeat soon so I will report back uh, on my gonzo journalism for you as well Andrew and let you know if indeed it is the case Fear and loathing in Unicam (laughs) I'm due to get one too, I'll report back as well. Great, I'm going to be going in with my Hunter S. Thompson S. glasses and shock, no I'm not going to do that I'm not doing that. that Don't do that so that's what I have for you this week. Thank you kindly. Please, everybody, keep your emails coming. You can email tova at stuff.co.nz. And as Tova said earlier, feel free to send us a voice memo. We might well feature you on the pod. Thanks, producer Chris. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There's a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts. There's a little treat coming tomorrow, a quickfire round of tax questions that we put to the two finance prospects. Thanks to our audio editor wizard, Connor Scott, and executive producer Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. As we saw this week, a week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite.